We're in the book of Samuel, continuing, continuing right through, and that actually is the layout. Uh, I have to go back, and we're going to uh, spend a little more time on something that I just barely touched on last week. And I had no intention of doing this as I went into the week's preparation, um, but as I've learned to do many, many years ago, uh, I try to approach what I'm going to do on any particular Sunday truly with, uh, with any plan or presumption that I might have with a very open hand because the Lord often changes it, and again, uh, he certainly did. When we read the Old Testament, let me change that. When I read the Old Testament, whether I'm reading it casually or whether I'm, whether I'm reading it to prepare it for this kind of a uh, presentation, I try to keep two things in focus. That is the historical context, meaning what is happening in the situation for the people of the day, what's relevant to the people of the day and everything else, because it is. It's not like everything that happened throughout history is all about future fulfillment and future relevance to a future people. There were very important, relevant things going on in the days of Samuel and of Eli, the high priest, and his two sons, Phineas and Hophni. And all of that is true. So we want to keep that firmly fixed and not go beyond the bounds of that. But then there is also the challenge of looking for the eternal principle or principles that are there that translate to us even in our day. And so that we can find relevance instead of just basically reading history and going, okay, well, that was nice. Check it off on the list. That's not why God bothered to write two-thirds of the Bible, putting it in the Old Testament context. And so, as I said, Israel was, again, in what would be a cyclical pattern for them in a particularly low state of disobedience. And God in his faithfulness was striving ardently, as he does in all of those cyclical periods, bringing hardship on his people. Not blessing to like, to like woo them into a place of obedience, you know, almost like dangling a, a cookie for them, but rather bringing hardship upon them to wake them up, bringing them back to their senses, and ultimately to bring them back to their king, Jehovah, because we are still in a theocracy, meaning God was truly the head of the government of his people. So what we looked at last week was that the Lord's first attempt was to bring his favored ones a very stinging defeat at the hands of the Philistines, one of their arch enemies and a very strong military force. And it was really a stinging defeat. It was a hard defeat. And so they determined that they needed a different strategy. Well, as it so happens, as we let read last week, the Ark of the Covenant was resting outside of their boundaries in the city of Shiloh. And they perceived that with the Philistine trouncing, where they lost 4,000 of their men, that it was due to the fact that God was somehow angry with them. <laughs> Lo and behold, indeed he was. And the reasons we have already talked about in past week. Now, this morning, what we want to do is we want to hopefully learn from the failings of others instead of merely repeating them, albeit in a repackaged form. So what does the follower of God Almighty do? I'm referring to, I hope, most of us in here anyway. What do we do when one's sin puts one on the naughty list of the Creator, so to speak? 
Do you just ignore it, knowing that God is full of mercy and grace? That is a very prevalent way for we Christians who have grown up in a very blessed country, in a blessed nation, in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where it really costs nothing, and the presumption is is that the Santa Claus-like God who exists solely for the purpose of handing out goodies is there for us whenever we need him, but not to be bothered with any other time. So that is one way of dealing with our sin. Just ignore it. After all, we live in an age of grace. Some other people choose to make themselves feel better by throwing in a couple of nice things to do, meaning not changing anything, not turning away from their sin, but just trying to maybe pile up some good deeds to make themselves feel better while they are in the midst of their commitment to whatever the sinful choice or pattern happens to be. Or there is yet another option. Do you turn from the sin or sins and plead God's mercy and grace as well as his need for his strength in eliminating that sinful behavior, that sinful choices, the sinful pattern, completely removing it from your routine? In the Hebrew, the word is shuv, and it means to repent. It literally means to turn. And back in the days at Trinity, Walt Kaiser, dean of the seminary, as well as one of my professors of Old Testament theology, was speaking to us about this. And he's the one that told us that shuv is the Hebrew word for turn or to repent. And he said, and what God does throughout the periods of his people, of his disobedience and obedience, is when they're disobedient, he tells them, in fact, yells at them in a manner of speaking, to shuv, shuv. And then he says, and God gives them a shuv in the right direction. And I thought, you know what? That sticks. And obviously it has, lo, all these many, many decades later. When rebellion when disobedience, when just sheer foolishness are bringing a high price in our lives, the answer isn't to just continue that pattern and hope for a better outcome. If I am, fortunately, this really one, this one doesn't come from my personal life, but I know it's common for a lot of people. If I'm getting particularly distressed looking at my credit card statements, The solution isn't to ease my pain, to ease my suffering, by making another unnecessary splurge that will momentarily satisfy my moments of distress. It will, until the next statement. And then, lo and behold, things are even worse. But you see, that's just kind of a very uh, sort of cause and effect kind of situation. The consequences of those are rather quick and generally undeniable. But what are more, not important necessarily, but what I'm focusing on more at the moment is what about those secret sins of ours? And they don't have to be huge or heinous but just things that we've learned to kind of kind of keep under wraps, to keep under cover, no pun intended for what I'm going to say. And we've just kind of learned to live with them, almost winking at ourselves. Well, you know, God understands. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls, whatever. 
What about those more secret sins? Our viewing habits, for example, online. Or perhaps that relationship that's been developing over time at your place of work. Oh, they're just a friend. Or that growing titillation that you have as you've reconnected with an old, old pal or girlfriend on Facebook from high school or college. Or perhaps it's a brand new acquaintance that you've met through social networking. Have you never carried a secret sin that just weighs on you and eats your lunch? It robs you of your vitality, of your self-respect, and certainly of your joy. King David came to mind as I was kind of wading through this. And King David was not always transparent. He has his moments. But for the most part, he was not a real transparent kind of guy. And he is called even a man after God's own heart. But wasn't he acquainted with the downside of harbored secret sin? He writes about it in Psalm 32. He begins on a really positive note, saying, How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, he starts his song off, for that is what the Psalms were. They were basically songs. He starts off with a joyous realization Forgiveness is so rejuvenating. It is so renewing. And so David's introduction to this psalm is actually the happy ending before the tragic middle, which he writes about in a moment. His joy in this opening comes from having gone through hell, and I mean that rather literally theologically because you see whenever we sin we are separating ourselves from God we separate ourselves from the right if you will of having God's favorable eye upon us and that sin diminishes our relationship with the living God the relationship that he wants to be completely full and unsullied but the longer we prolong in that sinful place the more distance grows in that separation of relationship. And again, that is by God's loving design. And David knows that now all too well. He continues, verse 3 of Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, O oh God, was upon me heavily. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. If you have ever been there, or possibly even are there, you know that it is horrid. And yet, it is loving. Those whom God loves. He disciplines. 
David found relief, though. He continues, I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. David said, Uncle, I had an older brother growing up. Three and a half years old, older, <laughs> which is quite a span when you start thinking in terms of uh, when somebody's like seven and eight and he's almost a teenager. And one thing he used to do to me, just for kicks, there were a lot of things, but he'd come up to me and he'd take my arm and he'd put it behind my back, right? We see this in the Christmas story. Ironically, not ironically, coincidentally, the same time period that I'm talking about. And my brother come up and he'd start slowly moving my arm up. Okay, it only goes so far. And then it starts to hurt. <laughs> Go figure. And then he'd say, say uncle, say uncle, say uncle. And it's like, oh, you're not going to get me to say uncle! Right before you hear tendons snapping and everything else. It's good fun. <laughs> then I would turn around and do it to my sister. Well, God got David to say, Uncle! And David writes again, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you can be found. Wait, what? What do you mean in a time when God can be found? This is to the believer, right? Yes, it is. Then what does this even mean? It means that the believer can resist the loving discipline of the Lord. And the longer that he or she resists, the further and further away the Lord seems to be. And he will even get to the point where anthropomorphically speaking, he will walk further and further away, or better, he will let us walk further and further away. And he will turn and he will get to a point where he says, fine, have it your way. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. And when you do, he writes, surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And then the person who is speaking changes and David records this now it's God speaking and God says and I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way which you should go I will counsel you with my eye upon you do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check otherwise they will not come near to you you see, without the, the external constraint of a bit and bridle, which as I understand it, hurts the animal, which I checked with my equestrian expert, my 12-year-old granddaughter. I just wanted to make sure what I was saying was right. And I just said, so it, my understanding is, is that the bit, which is this metal thing that is in the horse's mouth, is in his teeth, and the metal part that comes out, that's the bit, and then the bridle's all the leather stuff that attaches to it. And the reason a horse does what you want it to do, woeing, going left or going right, is because they learn very quickly that when you pull to the left, that bit is yanking on their teeth and their dentures and all of that. And if they have fillings, I'm being facetious, imagine that metal hitting that filling. Ah! Okay. So they learn very quickly that, okay, this is going to hurt. So what do they do? They turn and they follow it. 
I want you to go the other way. Okay, I'm going. And it's interesting, the scriptures use that particular illustration and says, don't be like them. In other words, God is saying, don't make me have to hurt you to get you to do what I want you to do. And it's not because he's mean or because he views us as just so many pawns on a board and he's just going to have fun in messing with us. It's because he gave us life and he gave it more abundant. And he says, therefore, because I love you, I will steer you and direct you in the way that you're going to get the best out of this life. And we go, yeah, nah. David concludes, having learned the hard way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy for all you who are upright in heart. In 1 Samuel 4, again, we are under Eli's leadership, Eli's pathetic, wretched leadership of God's people, who had just lost 4,000 men. God's people knew that they were under God's loving judgment, but instead of repenting, they had a plan. Don't do what God says. Let's not turn from our sins. Let's come up with a different strategy. And so they decide to acquire a good luck charm, but what they need is not a good luck charm. They don't, they're not going to benefit anything by throwing on their religious t-shirts or putting a fish emblem on their chariot or having a new verse tattooed on their body while pursuing sinful choices. That's not going to help. The elders saw their soldiers killed by the enemy and their first thought was, why has Jehovah defeated us? When in fact they weren't fighting God, well not, not physically, but they were. They were fighting the Philistines. But even in their state they knew that success in any and every venture in life depended on being on the right side of the one with whom they were in special relationship through the covenant that he designed, that he fashioned, that he crafted, and he explained with detail in the covenant at Sinai, summarized in the Ten Commandments. But even that first covenant was not one-sided. Meaning God says, here's what I'm going to do for you today. Period. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, I think. See, I have, beset, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments. Why? So that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. That's the good side. If you guys do this, I'm going to bless you big time in all ways. But... But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and you worship other gods and you serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, 
the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live and you and your descendants by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days. It was never one-sided. But under Eli's leadership, their solution is not to return to God, not to return to their king, not to call a day of repentance, national mourning. Their solution is to acquire the ark. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll fix everything. For Samuel 4, verse 3, Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us, and by implication, it will, it will, it, the ark, will deliver us from the power of our enemies. The ark as a good luck charm. It didn't work out for the Israelites, and the ark as a secret weapon didn't work out for the Philistines when they had it in their possession. As with everything that was done per the rituals and the sacrificial rites of the whole system of Judaism, the ark was the visible reminder of God's continuous abiding presence among his people, meeting them through the visible manifestation of his glory. In Exodus chapter 25, the Lord dictates the purpose for the ark and the design of the ark, and the mercy seat, which is what was on top of the ark. It was special, all right, absolutely, but not as a weapon or a charm. Exodus twenty-five, twenty-two. There, there at the ark, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This is the ark. This is a good representation of the ark. You see on top there is a lid. And the two cherubs, plural in Hebrew, cherubim, the two cherubim, are there with their heads facing each other, with their wings covering their faces in humility. And that top is what is called the mercy seat, the distance between those two cherubim. And that is where God said, I will meet with you there. It is where God met with his people and spoke with his people. Now, pause that. Shoot up thousands of years, well, hundreds of years, to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, having been crucified, risen from the dead, but not yet gone back to heaven. The disciples are totally flummoxed, have no idea who they're with. And he finally, the scripture says that beginning with the scriptures and the writings, meaning the Old Testament, he began to explain to them about himself using the Old Testament. The things of the Old Testament are explaining, pointing to, and expanding the awesomeness of God's plan of salvation through the coming Redeemer, Jesus. Let's let the Bible now interpret the Bible concerning the Old Testament entity called the Ark of the Covenant with a New Testament perspective on that Ark. So that you see, I am not just conveniently twisting things and making something out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 9, 
beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, referring to what I already talked about from Exodus, uh, concern, or Deuteronomy, concerning the law and the covenant at Sinai. That was the first covenant. Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And in there was a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat." Now, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic and snippets of a couple other obscure languages. But here it is written in the Koine Greek, and the word that is used in Hebrews and translated categorically as the mercy seat is the word hilasterion. That word occurs only one other time in the whole New Testament. In Hebrews, hilasterion is the mercy seat. But Paul uses it in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. Let's look at it. It is profound. All have sinned, Paul writes, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you see it? No, I didn't expect you to. Not yet. Let's repeat being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The word there, propitiation, which means to satisfy or appease the anger in this context of God Almighty, by satisfying His demands of perfection, His demands for holiness. He has never lessened that demand. That is the requirement for anybody to get into heaven. Absolute, sin-free, sinless perfection. And nothing has changed. Propitiation is the action which appeases or removes any anger that God has against any and all sin. And Jesus, we are told in Hebrews, is the only one who does that. Do you see it yet? Probably not. The word here translated propitiation is the exact same word, the helisterion, that the, is used in Hebrews for the mercy seat. Let that one sink in. Reading it differently, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat. He is the propitiation in His blood through faith. Jesus is 
the mercy seat. He is the place where God meets with His people because Jesus alone is the only one able to meet with us because His anger against our sin has been removed by Jesus, our mercy seat. So Paul continues with a logical progression of thought in verse 20, or for the rest of Romans 3, 23 through 28. Paul then writes, well, where then is boasting? What do you mean, boasting of what? Boasting of your salvation. Well, you know, I studied the Bible, I put two and two together and said, no, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. You have no reason for boasting, and we just told you why. Jesus, the mercy seat, is the only place where the Father can meet with His people because there His anger against our sin has been appeased. Jesus is that mercy seat. So boasting is excluded by what kind of a law? By a law of works, meaning earning our way? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Back to the writer now of Hebrews who penned the words of the Lord in chapter 9 with a view of chapter 10. Explaining the bigger picture concerning the law of God which includes the necessity of the whole sacrificial system of Judaism. Verse 1 begins in chapter 10. The law is but a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the very form of things. And because of that, they can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Israel's plan to grab the ark on which sits the mercy seat was the physical representation of Emmanuel, God with them. At that particular point and moment in history, and ultimately, that mercy seat, all those thousands of years before, were ultimately an ad, if you will, a billboard, a commercial pointing forward to the one and only perfect mercy seat which would do away with the sacrifices and the offerings under the Old Testament economy once the Emmanuel God with us came. Jesus, the Helisterion, the mercy seat, the one of the, in the Old Testament where God met with His people and still today meets with us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because He has appeased the wrath of the Father against all wickedness and sin, of which we are awful. Now, I know that bad things happen to good people. That's, we know that. We live in a broken world. But I honestly have to tell you that in all of my many decades now and growing of counseling individuals, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of things that I have dealt with over many years in counseling with people are things that were not the result of living in a broken world. In other words, you know, somebody done me wrong or whatever. It is by virtue of their own personal choices and decisions that were in defiance of what God had written for our instruction and good life. 
You say, well, but somebody, so-and-so, they did this to me, and so I did that. I understand that. It stinks. The fact that they did that to you is part of the problem of living in a broken world. But you then also chose to do your own thing and respond in a way that is not in correspondence with God's commands. That's what I mean by saying that most of the troubles that people come in with are a result of their personal choices and decisions. Even if they are in response to somebody else's choices and decisions that affected you very negatively. So we all have sin. My goodness. And hopefully they're becoming less and less, but being candid with you. Yeah, there are all kinds of sins in my life that have become less and less and many, many eradicated. But it seems the longer I live, new ones keep coming along. New and creative ones that cause me to cry out with the Apostle Paul, Lord, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, Romans 8 answers, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who saves us from our unrighteousness. The answer is not to placate and and to babysit our sins and to feed it and cover it up with good deeds or doing things or making a good pretense. The only solution is to turn, is to repent and stop those sins with by God's grace and strength, we can do that. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Helisterion, thousands of years ago, the Helisterion, come to earth, the Helisterion, whose birth we celebrate as God with us in just a matter of weeks. Let me have you stand. This is Advanced Sunday when we are going to ask our ladies to... uh, file out and we ask the men to stick behind for just a few more minutes for some uh, personalized notes from our men's ministry director Jeff Dion. Father in heaven, give us new eyes to see, give us clarity to see our own self-deceptions that we would truly turn from them, Lord. And if we don't shove, I pray, give each one of us a shove in the right direction for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.